Aloha Kako. This is the Aloha Friday Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. Hawaii Talks. I'm Noe Tanigawa, here every other Friday with a focus on art, culture, and ideas in Hawaii. Ooh, it's starting to hurt now. The Mary Monarch Hula Festival has been canceled for this year because of coronavirus concerns. It's a blow for those of us who love hula, for those of us who love Hilo, but across the community, unqualified support for festival president Luana Cavello's difficult decision. Festival of the Pacific was postponed earlier. Yesterday, the Honolulu Museum of Art said film showings, lectures, remaining events in March are canceled starting today. Spring semester classes at the museum school are canceled starting Monday, though the museum itself is open. Just this morning, the Hawaii State Art Museum, Hi Sam, notified the public that uh, programs and galleries are closing starting Monday, and that happens through April. The University of Hawaii is taking all classes online after spring break through April 15th. Shamanad has made similar plans there, and there are no cancellations yet, however, for Hawaii's public schools. Spring break is on starting Monday, but they are planning for possible school closures. I mean, this would have a huge effect on parents across the state, and students, too, of course. And speaking of students... One of the most vulnerable populations in Hawaii are the unsheltered, and that includes Hawaii's more than 3,600 school students in unstable housing. According to the DOE, the number of those students has stayed about the same over the past 10 years. There are nearly 3,000 students living in unstable housing here on Oahu alone. I'd heard from high school students about growing up with nowhere to do homework. You know, you had to perch it on your knee or on the cooler top, and then the rain comes and gets the whole thing wet and torn. Let's find out what school is like for these students. I'm so honored to be here with three public school teachers who've agreed to talk with me and you about their experiences with homeless students. Now, I'm going to use the word houseless here because I've been told that this is less hurtful, and it it actually does mean something different. Um, what we're talking about is people without permanent shelter. So we'll go ahead here, and I wonder if we could just kind of go around the table. Would you introduce yourself, Brandon? Hi, my name is Brandon Gallerita. I teach eighth grade English language arts at Central Middle School. Uh-huh. Okay, perfect. Hi, uh, my name is Ellie Cantar, and I am a ninth through 12th grade ELL teacher at Farrington High School. And my name is April Hisatake. I am the curriculum coordinator at Royal School. We're a K-5 elementary school. Thank you so much for coming in today because 2020 kind of started out with some wet and chilly weather. And it just does get you a little worried about how people are handling it if they have no permanent home. Maybe could we start with you, Brandon? Um, Can you tell which of your students are facing houselessness? It's interesting thinking of houselessness, um, and when I tend to think of houselessness, I don't necessarily think about no shelter at all. Um, I think of it into more broader terms of unstable housing um, in the first place, and so it's not necessarily students who don't have a home, but they tend to be between homes as well. Mm. Well, What's it like for you, Ellie, in in your high school classrooms? Very similar to what Brandon was saying. There's a lot of students that come to school, and Mm -hmm. you'll see that there's maybe something going on or they're facing some kind of barriers. But unless I sit down and have a conversation with a student and they kind of explicitly tell me what's going on, it's hard to tell. So there are no outward signs, really? I think it's a little different in elementary school because we have the kids all day. Mm -hmm. And, And when you ask about how we know about the kids, that's the thing. I think that's the main thing in our classroom to know them. And when you build that kind of relational trust with them, they open up, Hmm. especially in elementary. They'll they'll tell you, and that's how you will know. We also have forms that the parents fill out, so we know exactly who who are houseless students. We do. We do. We do. There's information that we get from from the office, but also for the kids, it's mostly, I like to know from them, mm-hmm. you know, because then it, it builds that trust. And, and when they feel safe enough, then they'll open up 
and then then the magic can happen mm. be- between just kind of opening up and and having that safe place. How many houseless kids do you think you have? Or uh, do you know? at, at our school, we have twenty seven students mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. We, we only have three hundred fifty somewhat students mm-hmm. total. It, it varies. It's yeah. actually been kind of less now because of the housing. Uh, well, at the beaches, they had sweeps, so mm-hmm. it's very transient, and they'll have to move to a different beach or elsewhere for housing. So that's the hard part, too. Because well, do you know when that's happening? Oh. No, and then the students won't, won't know either. So no. it, you build the trust, you pour in, and then one day they're not there. <laughs> And then, of course, we contact parents. We try to find out, and we find out, yeah, they, they had to move. They moved. Do, how do other students respond? I think that's the thing, too, is the modeling. We are all the same. I mean, nobody's treated any differently. And especially the little ones, I think, they look up to the teacher. So if they see you treating everyone with kindness, they, they follow suit. They want to be like like you and then yeah so then it it becomes it becomes a community within within the little classroom so it's it's really cool thing to see oh the beauty of elementary school exactly (laughs) yeah (laughs) ellie i mean can you imagine that kind of exchanging going on at the high school level yeah i i think that a lot a lot of it is really similar at the high school level really making time to build those relationships with students. So part of it in high school too is you you can have some very real conversations with teenagers um, about topics and about issues in ways that you can't with younger students. Well, what do they seem to think about houselessness? In terms of the factors that lead to something like that, there's still a lot of misunderstanding. There's still not a lot of talk about topics like that. So I think trying to use the classroom as a place to normalize those discussions where it becomes something that you can talk about or where you, you know, students begin to see like I I can take some ownership in my community and I can make a difference to help people. The one story that I can't help but think about is the student who told me that I didn't want to stay at home because I didn't want to sleep on the balcony because there was too much going on inside the house. So I wanted to leave my house and go stay with auntie because it was more calm there. How can you care about school when you're so worried about, am I going to be okay today? And that's the thing that breaks my heart because a lot of the times, I'm sure the kids are saying, it's great and all that you care about what I wanna do tomorrow and what I wanna be when you grow up, but what about today? What about tomorrow? And it's a reality that I think I don't recognize personally enough myself, and it causes me to seriously slow down and really think about the deeper reasons why students act the way they act or treat others the way they do. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a challenge, but it's one that's incredibly, an incredible privilege to be able to be a part of as well. We don't even think of wearing clean clothes or I mean what we're gonna eat or I mean it's it but these kids deal with that every day and then we expect them to learn their ABCs mm-hmm. you know so yeah it's it's kind of people over program many mm-hmm. times you know <laughs> just to to you know just to know that you matter we see you and you matter and, and, and just hearing it going from intermediate to high school, yeah. it's the best feeling for me because it, it's carrying on. And who knows mm-hmm. what kind of effect we're going to have, right? Then, if we right? all, yeah. Ellie, can you imagine people in the community doing something else that might uh, help somehow? One of the things for high school students is that they finish school and then um, many of them then have to go and help take care of siblings and things like that as well. So if there are community programs available, making those spaces that teenagers can go with elementary students where there's something for kind of across mm. that K-12. I really think that's a great idea, you know, just a student, a place for 
young kids and K through 12 and perhaps even the family to go, mm-hmm. you know, after school hours as well is an excellent idea. Um, actually, at Central Middle School, we just opened up. We were thankful to have been donated a lot of uh, stoves and sinks and supplies to have. It's still in the process of being flushed out of, you know, what the expectations are and all the fine details, mm-hmm. but a place where the community can come to use the stoves to cook a meal. Mm-hmm. Um, we have washers and dryers as oh, well. And really? so, yeah, so it's really incredible. And to think about the school, not as just a place for learning, but a, pl- a place that's rooted in the community and mm. acts as this, I guess, a foundation. I mean, if education is so important to our state, our country, and our world, maybe it shouldn't just be the learning part, but fostering a community part that's centered around ideals that are really good for the community as a whole. Boy, but I'm amazed and thrilled to hear how you're thinking about it there at Central. Building those relationships with kids is just so fundamental, and it's building those relationships not only with teachers, but any any other adult that's that's in their life in some ways, because Oftentimes, it's the small things that you can do for students that really make a big difference. So if one thing that I've noticed at at the high school level is because students are moving around a lot, um, getting them access to a free bus pass all of a sudden means that no matter where they're living, they can stay in that same school community. Um, And without building those relationships, you never are really able to figure out what small things you can do to help that student. It, it's crazy to have three educators in this room that are genuinely thinking about these questions and how we can make not just our schools a better place, but our society as a whole. Well, it gives a member of the general public like me a lot of hope. Yeah, hope. Yeah. That's the word, though, I think, because teachers out there who are listening, if every single one of us, if you think, why, why do we go into this profession? And, and really dove into it. It's not, it's not the money. <laughs> it's because it's we want to make a difference. So at our school, our, our administration, our principal, she allowed us to go back to that, our vision, our why. Why do we do this? Mm-hmm. We all came up with our mission statement, with this, which is to like positively affect students by believing in them and giving them the skills to be the best they can be, whatever that is. If all teachers go in with that to, to remember why we're doing this, the kids will be empowered. They will be empowered to know, hey, I matter. I can do this. Even through these circumstances, they learn grit. They learn perseverance because it's something that can't be taken away from them. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm grateful for what these people do every day. Brandon Gallerita, Central Middle, 8th grade English teacher. Ellie Cantor Farrington, 9 to 12 ELL. And April Hisatake from Royal Elementary. Mahalo also to the team at Department of Education and Toby Portner, Homeless Student Coordinator. It's been a pleasure working with you all. You know, Chanel Honda told me about Purposity. It's an app that connects users to public school student needs. She says it really works. Purposity. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and Queen Emma Preschool. I'm Ira Plato. On the next Science Friday, why washing your hands is a great way to protect yourself from the coronavirus. Why regular soap is a sophisticated weapon against viruses, but vodka, not so much. It's the science of sanitation 
as our special coverage of COVID-19 continues on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Starting this afternoon at 1. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with a mission to create relevant and transformative experiences through art with collections of Asian, European, and American works, including arts of Hawaii and textiles. HonoluluMuseum.org. Last week, there was a message from the Centers for Disease Control that you may have missed. It involved mushrooms. <laughs> yeah, the CDC advises not to eat enoki mushrooms under the Sun Hong Foods label from Korea. They found some listeria contamination. Now, that's a temporary situation. But do you ever notice mushrooms growing in your yard or maybe in the park and wonder if you can eat them? I do. I take pictures of them and I just... I think, who can I show this to and then tell me whether I can eat this thing? Well, Don Hemis can. Professor Emeritus of Biology at UH Hilo, this man spent the last 30 years studying mushrooms of Hawaii. We met, of course, on Hawaii Island where he lives, but guess where? At rugged Mackenzie Beach Park in Puna. I mean, you'd think, who goes to the beach for mushrooms? But it was amazing. There's a little group of us, Don Hemis, his wife Helen, and if you're wondering, yes, there are native mushrooms. And when Don first started noticing them on his hikes, then photographing them, he was surprised to find that science had neglected the whole fungal kingdom in Hawaii. Basically, there were no mushrooms described from the evolutionary capital of the world. So we wrote a grant to National Science Foundation, and they funded us for about seven years to study mushrooms of Hawaii. Wait, when did that start? In the 80s, you know, in the early 80s. We went from mountaintop, we'd start on Kauai, and go down to the seashore, you know, hiking through the mountains and so on, and then we'd go to, to Oahu and to Maui and Molokai and Lanai and end up here on the Big Island. So we collected and collected, and we find out it's true in Hawaii for almost all organisms. If you go above 4,000 feet, that would be Volcanoes National Park area, the saddle on this island, and on all the islands, 4,000 feet, everything above that, it, it's found only in Hawaii and nowhere else in the world. It's true with birds, it's true with the flowering plants, and it's true with the mushrooms. So above 4,000 feet, every mushroom that we find is endemic to Hawaii. It's found nowhere else in the world. Are there so, many above 4,000 feet? We've probably found 20, 30 species of mushrooms up there. Ah. They're very colorful. They're pinks and oranges and yellows and uh, like that. And they haven't been described for science. But how do you describe a mushroom? Like, how do you describe <laughs> it like scientifically as you guys Okay. Say? In the olden days, like a couple years ago, <laughs> you did it by the morphology, the shape, the color. You even do my microscope work. You look at the hairs on the stems and the hairs on the gills and stuff like that. Oh, so what would you say about the... So the, the first question is, what color are the spores? And that means the gills, because that's where the spores are. So what we do is cut the cap off and put it on a piece of paper and let them drop the spores. And a mushroom would drop up to a million spores a day. So it makes a big print there. Ah. And you can see what color they are. And then we look at various things, whether they have little scales on the cap. On the stem, there can be a little ring, or the technical name is an annulus. Mm -hmm. that it cannot be there or be there. Or it can look like a woman, woman's skirt. The ones that send most people to the emergency ward they're not going to die. They're just going to be very sick. It looks like a ring on your finger. It'll go up and down the stem like a ring on your finger. So these no. are the, the morphological things that we look at. But oh. now, in the last couple of years, we cannot describe a new mushroom without its DNA fingerprint. Whether it's been described before, say, here's what species this is, or it's an undescribed species. So we just looked at <laughs> morels of Hawaii. Morels are a very delicious edible type one, and we have them here in Hawaii. What? So we sequence the morels from Hawaii, and they're identical to ones in China. So it's the same species. 
Oh, yeah. Okay. It's, it's, <laughs> they found it also in Turkey. And we go, what? And it's also found in Israel, of all places in Israel. Absolutely identical. That's great, Don. Explain that. Yeah. And cat, cat. We know that this species in Hawaii has been named. And it was found by the Sea of Galilee in Israel. And so it's been named Galilea. So the name of our morel here in Hawaii is Galilea, Marcella Galilea. Now, how they got from China to Hawaii to Turkey to, to Israel, we don't know. Yeah. yeah just, just feet from the ocean, we're picking our way among the ironwood trees. Look down was the all-important key to success provided by Helen Hemis. Sure enough, mushroom caps are poking their way through the carpet of ironwood needles. Don said there's no mushroom you can't touch. He picked up a delicate yellowish mushroom about two inches across. First thing I saw was the yellow gills. There aren't a whole lot of mushrooms that have yellow gills. And this I know from looking at it is a lepiota. Lepiotas have white spores, but this one has yellow spores, you know, so it's very distinctive. How are lepiota different from other mushrooms? The lepiota, I would say, almost always have white spores. They have an annulus around, around that, and they often have what we call squamules, or little, little flakes on the top of the cap. Like, you may have noticed there's some brown like uh, there. And we would, would say a lot of them are poisonous. They're not deadly poisonous, but they have gastrointestinal toxins. Most of the people that I visit in the emergency wards have eaten lepiota-type mushrooms. There's a very large one that, that you see in, in parks, very common on all the islands, in, on lawns and so on. And people, for some reason, eat them because it's a lot of food, and they say it <laughs> tastes good and stuff. And then I visit you in the emergency ward because oh. you get so sick that you have to go to the emergency ward. You're not gonna ride this out or something. You will throw up and you have diarrhea. So the, once I get up to the hospital and say to the doctor, they're not gonna die, it's gastrointestinal. They put a pan under your mouth and a pan under your butt and uh, an IV, you know, cause you're losing fluids like crazy and they pull the curtain and yeah, leave you for a day. You... And you're not gonna die, but uh, you basically wish you would. Wow. This is the same thing. And you see, these are the, all the same thing. Yay! Yeah. The most delicious edible one that I like the best is purple. It's absolutely lavender purple color. And there's no uh, poisonous one that looks like that. And so I can be sure that, uh, you, uh -huh. that, that, that that's edible. They grow on lawns, basically, and they grow in fairy rings, you know, all in a circle or in an arc. When they come up, they're just violently purple. They're just purple as can be. But how does it form like that? <laughs> you know what fairies are? These little people that run around at night. Right. You got to come out at night to look at them. And in Hawaii, there are many hoonies, <laughs> many hoonies. So we named one here, many hoonii. It's, it's a, a fungus that makes fairy rings all the time. And what happens is, for some reason, there's some nutrition in the middle where the spores land. Maybe some feces of a bird or some other animal. And so the mycelium, you know, the, fun, the mushrooms grow by little threads called hyphae. That's the body of the fungus. And they grow out radially. They start with some nutrition, they grow out radially, and then when the conditions are right, like it rains or who knows what conditions they are, they all fruit at the edge of the mycelium. So you get a ring there. They drop their spores there, they continue to grow outward, and then when the conditions are perfect, they fruit again. Because the mushrooms are the fruiting bodies, right, of the, the fungus. The body of the fungus is in the soil. And some mushrooms do it that way. They grow out radially very uh, easily, and others are just all over the place like this. Aroma. Now, see, here's a, a mushroom, and, and you know, right away I know the color, it's yellow. And so, this is another Lepiota. It, um, it looks poisonous. I don't it's know. Not, let's see. So, I'm on call for mushroom poisonings in the state. So, it's usually children, you know, toddlers 
there were some mushrooms on their lawn, and now there aren't, and the chilliken is <laughs> grazing around or something like that. Anyway, I've had about a dozen large dogs who have eaten mushrooms and died, because we do have a deadly poisonous one. I'm hoping we can find one. They're, they are very common here in the park. But how do the native mushrooms taste? What do they taste like? Oh, bitter, real bitter, you know. I spit them out right away. There's no Hawaiian name for mushrooms. Surely they saw them. They're common in the rainforests and they're brilliant colors, so they would have seen them. But none of them are poisonous. They taste terrible. You know, we always take a bit on our tongue and chew it and taste, see if it has a taste, because a lot of mushrooms have a very distinctive taste like that. They have, uh, they're not edible, they're not poisonous, so they didn't kill anybody, and they're not magic mushrooms. They're not hallucinogenic. They're hallucinogenic native Hawaiian mushrooms like that. So they were f probably fairly unremarkable to the Hawaiian folks but they would have seen them because they're colorful. So it never got translated. There are more recent names like pepeao, the, the right, ear right, fungus and stuff. Fungus. Those are recent names that have been put on here. Oh. Of all of them that we have named, we've named Lama Lama, which means glowing like the sun. We have Noe Lokilani, which means a pink rose in the mist. We have Pakelo, which means slippery like a fish. And we've named a bunch of them after uh, Pele, Madam Pele. We have Baolipo, which means growing in a dark, shady place, and so on. So that's been fun. And when we went first time to the mainland and at a national conference, showed them all these new Hawaiian mushrooms, oh, the people were just blown away, you know, by these new mushrooms. And the names, you know, the names. Like if I go to any of the other neighbor islands, and look in this habitat, I'm pretty sure to find the same things, the same things. So, you know, that makes me feel good about the field guide because it really works. You know, if you're in coastal Kajarina on Maui, you will find the same stuff as you find here. If you find things on your lawn in, on Oahu, the same things are on the lawn here. Pretty much, not 100%. And the native ones, you know, the endemic ones that are found in the rainforest are also found on all the islands. We have found them, the same species on all the islands. Really? Yeah. Oh, so somehow they get from here to there, you know, spores. Could be on bird feathers, you know, as the birds migrate mm. from island to island. Oh, I was on Lanai and... Uh, we went down to the coastal, uh, what, they have, uh, what do you call them, the trees that they have, mesquite trees, uh, keavi, keavi trees. And you know, underneath the keavi trees along the shore is all sand, the sand had washed up there. And I looked under there and as far as you could see there were mushrooms growing out of, they like to grow out of sand. And oh, I was grabbing some, putting them in, grabbing some. Mushrooms right out of the sand. Right out of the sand, yeah. You know, they have deer there, and the deer sleep or loiter in those areas. So it's probably a lot of dung in the sand for, Could for the be, mushrooms yeah. to grow, right? Yeah, you have those magical times. <laughs> I just needed to know once and for all whether you ever ate what you gathered, and I see now. <laughs> Not, Not real. Not really. I always say with mushrooms, it's a sauce. <laughs> okay, Don, I don't know if I totally agree with you on that, but Don Amos lives to tell the tale. He is Professor Emeritus of Biology. UH Hilo taught there 40 years, and he's been studying and documenting Hawaii's mushrooms for 30 years, naming them for science with the help of UH Hilo's Kalena Silva. And his guide, Mushrooms of Hawaii was written with biologist and mushroom expert Dennis Desjardins, sold out fast in hardback. There is now a soft cover edition. Helen says get the hard copy if you possibly can. The colors are more accurate. Mushroom season in Hawaii, my friends, is generally July to January. Don said morels went wild, absolutely crazy in South Point and Ocean View last year.
coronavirus, COVID-19. It's on everybody's mind, and I'm joined here with HBR's news director, Bill Dorman, to discuss the latest. Hi, Bill. Hi, Noe. Thanks Good for coming morning. in. Oh, you bet. No, and, you know, as, as our listeners uh, heard earlier this morning on NPR, President Trump had the news conference in the Rose Garden declared a national emergency. Now, what that means, among other things, it, promising up to $50 billion in federal aid. Mm. Uh, financial markets certainly like that. The Most stock indices closed up more than 9% by the close of the session mm. and the close of really a historic week on that yeah. side. But for us here in Hawaii, one, one key aspect of that address the idea of freeing up that funding and the flow through of money to the state. Uh, and that's why the declaring of the state of emergency on a national level plays in with the earlier declaration of the state of emergency on a here. state level yeah. here by, by Governor Ige because that, that makes other funding mechanisms uh, available. Uh, and that is sort of a, such a key part of this as we go on. Because what kind of funding is that, though? Well, it's, again, the details still to, uh, to be coming, uh, but you would anticipate short-term and then more medium-term or longer-term aspects of that. One of the key aspects is how quickly some of this can, can get freed up, and that's part of what the financial markets were concerned about, that there was a bogging down in process. And, mm. you know, meanwhile here, th there is still that, that basic hunger for basic information. What do we know so far? And again, just to review things that, that folks may yeah. have heard mm -hmm. already, but right. 32 tests carried out in Hawaii so far, which is, you know, very what? small, yeah. uh, very small number. That's, we're going to be hearing more uh, this afternoon from the, the Department of Health. Um, Catherine Cruz actually is on the, the line. She uh, learned they're going to be doing daily briefings now in the early mm -hmm. afternoon starting next week. Certainly a welcome development in terms of public information, um, Bill, but we're going to be hearing more about that. Right. Should we ask ourselves why there have only been 32 tests done so far? Well, again, you can... You can sort of look backwards and say why, yeah, but it's more sort of one thing. It's if you're thinking of it of driving down a car rather than looking at the rearview mirror <laughs> at this point, you look at the windshield and say, okay, how do we move forward on this and, and how quickly can we ramp this up? Mm -hmm. And that, that's one of the questions because other things depend, other decisions depend on that. So, for example, later this afternoon, we're expecting to hear something from the Department of Education mm -hmm. about their plans. We know that they've been uh, been talking that the state health officials have said that they've right. been talking with the education folks. Um, we know that yesterday there's a meeting among uh, heads, representatives of the major private schools, along with uh, Superintendent Christina Kishimoto. Mm. And that has been an area, frankly, where we have been slow to get information about plans. It's a critical piece, as you know, of that that broader situation. Spring break coming mm -hmm. around the country. Some schools have extended that uh, spring break. Heard from some parents locally here mm -hmm. that the schools are wanting to know information about potential plans that they have with their kids over this uh, spring break. And so much of this, mm -hmm. as you know, is on an, a rolling calendar, really, with contingency plans mm -hmm. that will develop as the situation develops. So, for example, with that, with that continuing phrase of an abundance of caution, but you look at the calendar. You got graduations. Exactly. You've got proms. You've got other public events with large gatherings. And, and Neil Blaisdell Center, by the way, is just pressing on. That's for business. For they say. Yes, and that that's was the latest today. Again, in terms of when you look, the, and the symphony uh, yep, came out with a, a, yep. saying we're going ahead with this. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned yourself uh, earlier in the hour on the on the university level. We know uh, University of Hawaii switching to online classes after spring break. Shamanad, so something that's similar. Shamanad, yeah. But you know, people, their their driver's licenses and all of that. There will be changes to that ID processing and driver's license processing. As well, I think uh, Mayor Caldwell is going to speak on that about two o'clock this afternoon. He's got mm. a conference coming up, and that the idea of this continual adjustment mm -hmm. as we go along, and with a piece of that being contingency plans, also, and any business uh, around the state has been doing this in terms of okay. What's our worst-case scenario? What are our phases, uh, depending on what happens? What are 
essential employees that need to be on site, what work can be done remotely, uh, things of that nature uh, going on. And then you you plan with, again, the, the rolling calendar idea. So, for example, David Lassner, UH president, said that he would like to have the university resume regular classes in person as of April 13th. But that, of course, depends on developments between Sure, now and now. sure, right. You know, well, all this has taken place during the legislative session. And is there something happening there? There's a, a House committee formed? D- oh, there, there sure is. So there was this meeting yesterday, this new House committee, uh, put together by House Speaker Scott Psyche, co-chaired by Bank of Hawaii President Peter Ho. 26 people on this on this mm. committee that's called the Select House Committee on COVID-19 Economic and Financial Preparedness. And they're looking at plans for the economy, both short-term and long-term, but there's a real concern about impact. Again, travel and tourism, of course, is a headline thing that everybody thinks about in mm-hmm. Hawaii, and that's certainly um, being impacted. But the, the roll-on effects through that retail industry uh, they had a public hearing yesterday morning, about, about an hour and a half or so. It was really fascinating to hear representatives from different parts of the economy, shipping and food, Ooh. chambers of commerce, medical community. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, services of all kinds. What what keeps this community together? I mean, it does require some face-to-face contact. It, it, it or does. Or it has up till now. And also sort of the idea of pushing things through, again, back to this declaration of emergency and what, what can be done for uh, to, to get things going. And Governor Ige used a phrase that others came back to, shovel-ready construction. Not something that, oh, we're going to do this, we're going to have plans for this that will happen in X number of years or months. But getting clearing permits to make things go now and and the folks from the construction industry that were uh, at the committee were stressing the importance of this. Carl Bonham of Uhiro. Building uh, what, Bill? Building projects that we will need. So, for example, the idea of an opportunity to move ahead with affordable housing, with affordable rental housing projects, things like this, things that can be put together in a creative way, but with with haste, with not not rushing to do it, but clearing some of the some of the hurdles that may otherwise be in place mm. in order to get uh, jobs going now, because employment, the longer this lasts, is again more of a concern. Uh, a, a lot to continue to review. We'll continue to review that on this program, on the conversation, mm. and certainly morning edition ATC. Right. Thank you, Bill. And you've been traveling recently. Uh, what was yes. that like? Airports across the U.S. Yeah. generally. Long story short, I decided to uh, went to the East Coast, but <laughs> skipped the trip to New York City. <laughs> we'll be back to New York at some point, but not on this trip. Uh-huh. Well, I heard the airports were a little less busy than normal, and that could continue. Thanks so much for getting back and giving us this report. You bet. Thanks, Noe. <laughs> that was Bill Dorman, News Director for Hawaii Public Radio. I met David Kuhn about four years ago because of his website, Sounds Hawaiian. It's dedicated to recording, archiving, and sharing the natural sounds of Hawaii. You're listening to his recording here of a native forest. It's from a couple of decades ago, and the material across this site is presented with such care. For example, if you're trying to learn bird calls, you can look up birds by island and by name. He tells you about the bird. You can hear variants of its calls. And he's got mammals, amphibians, native forest birds by island here. But I know his heart resides with the forest birds of Kauai. I originally met David Kuhn up Kokei, and I couldn't wait for us to give him a call and find out what he's been hearing. Yeah, I wanted to have you know that this is really hard to talk about. This, uh, uh, it's, uh, it's terminal for several of the birds here. So I, I don't, there's no good news around here uh-huh. for the birds. Does it feel different? Yeah. The warmth, how is it different there? Uh, it's probably average 10 degrees warmer than it was 20, 30 years ago. We used to have frost. I haven't seen frost in several years. So warming climate enhances mosquito development. It's uh, having an effect on the bird populations. 
What are you hearing these days? Less. Much less. For instance, on Yaniao yesterday, I, I've just concluded that it's, uh, it's no longer at a place where I always used to find it. You, you're used to going to places and you, you return to them repeatedly so you can expect to hear almost voices that you're used to, right? Right, but uh, no longer. In a, a, a stretch of maybe a quarter mile of Pihaya Trail, even last year there were six Aniani out. This year, I have not detected one. The recording that I'm going to find on your website, when is that from? Probably 20 years ago, but uh, as I said, the they do still sing, but you just hear very little of it. As, uh, as time goes on, there's little reason for a bird to sing if there's nobody to sing to. David says home rangers used to abut each other in the forest. Birds had to make contact, proclaim territory, mate. But if there's no one else around, what do Anyaniao sound like? David Kuhn recorded this about 20 years ago. Anyaniao. Okay, there are four kawaii honeycreepers. How different can they be? Check out the akeke'e. Pretty different, with that downward trill at the end. Well, listen to this dawn chorus in the Alaka'i wilderness that David recorded maybe two decades ago. now there would be nothing to hear. What does the forest seem like to you walking through it now? Lonely. And David for a long time now has been telling us that he felt like the birds sounded more similar. Kelly Crampton leads the Kauai Forest Bird Recovery Project. And Justin, hi, um, my field supervisor on this project, came along and said, yeah, I think maybe David's onto something. And so I connected them with a woman at UH, Christina Paxton, who works in a lab that analyzes sound. So the Lohe Lab at, with Pat Hart at the University of Hilo, Hawaii, mm-hmm. their whole purpose is to understand song in Hawaiian ecosystems. And that's not just bird song, actually. Like, that's actually also like whale song and dolphin song. They're interested in song generally. Wait, wait a minute here. Song in the Hawaiian environment? These researchers are onto something so Hawaii and so groundbreaking at UH Hilo Lohe Lab. Kelly explained that Christina Paxton and her team could partner with UH data scientists to find ways to analyze and compare sonograms looking for overlaps and similarities in bird songs. Their research showed that Kauai's forest is losing both bird populations and cultural diversity. There's a loss of distinctness that could be heard in songs that might be fragmented or composites. Unfortunately, in current times, the endangered birds have largely disappeared from Koke'e State Park. And so you have to go far into the Alakai to find them. We are seeing their ranges contract before our very eyes, unfortunately. When I first started on this project, I woke up in the morning and sort of to a deafening dawn chorus echoing around my tent. And we don't really hear that anymore. Even to my ear, it sounds every year a little quieter. I'm really worried about a species called Anianiao in particular because up until now, it's been really easy to find on the boardwalk. And this year, we don't see it, we don't hear it. And it's a little puzzling because it is supposedly one of the more common species left. What does it look like? The uh, Anianiao is a lemon drop. It's a bright, <laughs> it, is, it is my favorite bird. It is this bright, lemony, yellow ball of fluff with beady little eyes and a cute little beak. And it's the smallest of the Kauai forest birds. It's only the weight of four pennies, so very small little bird, but always sort of very cheery and perky. And so it makes me very sad to have not seen it my last couple times down the trail. Ani, ani, ow, huh? Ani, ani, ow. Oh, you have hope? Oh, I have a great deal of hope. These birds are really, really resilient. And they've been here for a long time, and they keep 
fighting to do what they do best, which is eat insects and make babies and keep on going. <laughs> and to, in doing so, they save our forest. Like we, we cannot underestimate the contribution of the of the birds to the health of the forest. So the Akikiki and the Akake control the insect populations that eat the leaves of the ohia. The puayohi eats the fruit that the olapa and the lapalapa produce, and it spreads those seeds throughout the forest. The EEV pollinates all the flowers in the understory to make those fruits in the first place. Without that, we have no forest regeneration. As you know, the rain follows the forest, right? So without a forest, we don't have cloud capture soaking up the beautiful rains that come in with the trade winds and letting it trickle down through our soils to be drinking water for us. It's a package deal. Oh, man, she's incredible. And word of the biological detective work being done here in Hawaii is getting out to the world. The work done by these Hawaii researchers was published last year, detailing the loss of diversity in Kauai forest bird songs. Their work was profiled in the Washington Post last December. It's in the Atlantic Facebook site right now. Crampton says she really has hope in a new offensive that's based on releasing non-biting male mosquitoes. And what they do is they result in infertility. Now, this involves injecting a bacteria into each mosquito right in the arm. Nah, (laughs) I don't know where, but I don't know how they do this. But Callie says that approach has a two to five year time horizon. If things get too dire, prior to that, she says they may try evacuations to Maui or Hawaii Island, which have higher elevations. Meanwhile, Crampton says, do everything you can to stem climate change. And you can find David Kuhn's recordings of natural sounds at soundshawaiian.com. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Ala Moana Center, welcoming 2020, the Year of the Rat, with cultural activities and performances today through 5 p.m. Event details at alamoanacenter.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Tara Brock, author of Radical Compassion, and next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how you can untangle difficult emotions using a weave of mindfulness and compassion in what I call the practice of RAIN. Sunday at 11. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, locations, Haleakala Waldorf School and Honolulu Waldorf School. People were still pretty carefree last week at the Hawaii State Art Museum. That's High Sam's first Friday. The fashion show was gritty and otherworldly with kind of a Bowie theme. And the mysterious mirror room was all revved up for the debut of the Honolulu Art Ensemble. You're listening to them here. These four guys are proponents of open flow improvisation. They bring their considerable skills into an environment and use that environment for inspiration. The sonic journey began in a meditative vein, then opened up. is tucked behind a corner and with mirrors running all along both walls. And for this performance, 
Imagine a totally dark room with vivid images of space and cellular form splaying across the ceiling and kind of ricocheting off the walls. <laughs> really, the idea is to get lost in experience. Jay, you've really got to check this out. Different moods, right? Jay Jasko, drums and percussion. Taltosh, guitar, flutes, marimba. Peter Shalin, trumpet and flugelhorn. I mean, you might know Peter as the chief operating officer of the Halikulani, also a veteran musician. Roland Longstreet, congas. Roland runs that oasis on Diamond Head, R's Cafe and Gallery. Really, you should stop by and say hi. This is Ron Jossel, Filipino-Canadian comedian. If you want to listen back to a show, visit the conversation at hawaiipublicradio.org. I think communication is vital, and I think because we have public radio, we have fair and unbiased communication that comes from a variety of perspectives. I think that's one of the few things we have left that is a free nation, so it's really important to preserve that kind of communication, and public radio brings that to us. Member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Radio with vision. Listen and see. <laughs> well, that's about it for this week's Aloha Friday Conversation. Coming up next week, we'll check in with Olympic athletes with Hawaii ties. I mean, how's coronavirus affecting them? We'd like to hear from you. Call that talk back line and leave your comments at 808-792-8217. You can email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. This program is produced by Lillian Tsang, Harrison Patino, Jason Ubai, and Paige Okamura. Backyard Quiz theme was written for us by John DeMello. I'm Noe Tanigawa. Let's take care of each other, all right, and meet again Monday to pick up the conversation. Mm-hmm.